Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. It is so good to see all of your faces this morning and to be here uh, to worship. Uh, I'm actually surprised that we have as many people as we have today, given the layers of ice that are outside. So uh, praise God for safety on the road, and we are so grateful to have you here with us to worship today, and we do trust that God will speak to you in the way that you need to hear from him. Uh, interesting thought, I actually was thinking about it as we were singing the last song. The last song we just um, sung is, is written by a man named uh, Matt Redman. And uh, one time I was at a conference where Matt Redman was playing, and he told the story behind that song. Um, he, he was at, he's a worship leader in, in England, uh, the time was, and uh, it was during the height of what they called the worship wars, where everybody was bickering back and forth about the integrity of hymns or uh, worship songs. And I say back when we were arguing about it, but you still see this nonsense here, there, and everywhere. Um, but what was interesting to me about the song is that... Uh, the pastor, the rector at that particular church, had had enough. And so for a period of several months, they just stopped singing any songs. No music at all in the church for several months. It said, until we can, until we can come to a point where we can respect one another and we can, because this isn't about the songs that we sing, it's about the Lord to whom we're singing and about whom we're singing. So until we can stop bickering about our personal preference and style, we'll just sing nothing. We'll come in, we'll read the scriptures, we'll pray, we'll, we'll hear the sermon, and we'll go home. And I, I always think, what, what courage is that? And so in the midst of that, Matt Redman wrote the song. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. This worship thing, it's all about you. And we're going to talk about that this morning. As we, as we look in Hebrews 11 and continue on in our journey through these people of faith who lived by faith, the, the next one we come to in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It's interesting to me as we read that verse because it's one of those things that, that we could easily get twisted and we're going to talk uh, this morning about the different perspectives on, on the offerings and why one offering was better than another. But it's interesting that, that the original worship wars took place so quickly after God created humanity. In the second generation of humanity, the worship wars began, and the worship wars became so contentious, and the sibling rivalry within it, brother fighting against brother, became so contentious that one brother killed another brother in order to protect his own honor. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have several brothers and sisters, and, and I know that there are times where our uh, our battles, our sibling rivalry got a little bit out of control. Any of y'all have brothers and sisters and that say, yeah, there, there have been times where maybe we crossed over line. Any parents that would say, yeah, my children definitely crossed over the line from time to time. It's interesting how many parents are willing to say their children crossed over the line, but how few of us are willing to say, yes, I absolutely crossed over the line. I know that my brother and I, uh, my youngest brother, Jimmy, and I regularly crossed over the line. We're five years separated, so there wasn't so much a, a competition about uh, on an athletic field or about who was better. I was always, as five years older, I was always bigger than him. I was always faster. But there, was, there, were, there were different wars and battles about control in the house, right? One of the biggest was who was going to control the remote control, Right? Who, who's going to watch what they want to watch? And especially if mom and dad were gone, there was a solid likelihood that, that our sibling rivalry would go beyond just common fighting. I remember one time that we were fighting over the, the remote control, and my brother thought he was going to be clever and ran past me, grabbed the remote control, and thought he was going to get away. And I just put my foot out and let him fall face first on the chair next to him. And I thought the battle was over, right? I had asserted my dominance. I had shown that I was clearly his better by, by thwarting his, his physical attempt to, to put me at, at a lower level. I had the remote in hand, and I thought we were going to move on with our day. I had been victorious. Uh, my, my rule was once he'd started crying, the battle was over. Face chair, tears flow, I win. All right? Big brother strikes again. And while I sit there watching the TV, and a couple of minutes later, I hear someone come running from behind me, and, and just as I turn around, a cookie sheet to the face. <laughs> Bong! 
Now, I won't tell you where it went after that because it doesn't look good for me. But there was this constant battle in our house, and, and I could go between multiple. I have seven different siblings with stepbrothers and sisters, and there was constantly this battle over, over who was going to be in control. There was constantly a battle over who was better. There was constantly bickering back and forth about who was the favorite. There was constantly this, this tension between us, and usually it, it was friendly tension, but there were moments where our pride and our ego and our personal desire to validate how much better we were caused us to actually act worse. And I think that we see that throughout human history, but unfortunately I think that that comes into the church in ways that we deal with one another in the context of worship as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are so concerned with who is better, who is more important, who is in control, that we forget what worship is really supposed to be about in the first place. And we see that in the lives of Cain and Abel. Again, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. As we turn our attention to the story of Abel and his brother Cain and the worship that they offered to the Lord, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning in clear ways. God, I pray that you would help us to put to the side our pride and our prejudices, that you would help us to truly in these moments be focused on you, dear Lord. That we would seek to understand the truth of your word, that we might understand your desires for our lives, that we might better worship you with those lives. God, speak to us in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order to really understand this story, we need to turn back in the Bible. Because the Hebrews 11 verse 4 doesn't give us a whole lot of context to understand what's going on. Perhaps you, like me, you read that passage and you're like, what is it about Abel that made his offering better? Why would God make that comment? And what's the context of the story? So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. And it says this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain replied. Am I my brother's keeper? We're going to stop there for a minute and look at this story and consider the reality of these offerings and try to figure out what is going on and what makes the difference. And I think we see the difference right there as we go throughout. The, it's, it's unambiguously stated in the passage as to what is going on and why one offering is better than another. I think one of the things that we need to register as we consider this passage, as we consider the life of Abel and his sacrifice, his offering, and Conversely, the offering of Cain is what makes an offering acceptable to the Lord. The acceptability of the offering is dependent upon the condition of the heart. The acceptability of the offering is dependent upon the condition 
of the heart. Now let's look and see how we get this from this passage. First, we notice in the text that both Cain and Abel offer, make offerings to the Lord. Right? Both, both Cain and Abel come to the Lord and present something to them, to the Lord, as an act of worship, if you will. You know, what's interesting to me about this, though, is, is we go directly from the, the, the writer of Genesis telling us that Cain and Abel are born... And telling us what they then subsequently grow up to do, that one is a farmer and one is a shepherd, to immediately telling us that they offer worship to the Lord. You know what the passage never tells us? That the Lord asked for it. Up to this point, God has not, God has not asked humanity for offerings. There's no command that has been given to humanity to this point saying, offer these sacrifices, do this thing in this way. As a matter of fact, there are, only, there are very few standing instructions for humanity to this point in human history. Genesis 1, verse 28, we see, we see one of the first instructions, and that instruction is to populate the earth. Genesis 2, 15, we see a secondary command from the Lord, work and care for the earth. Genesis 2, 16, we see what is truly the only true command that the Lord has given humanity, and that is, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And mom and dad have already mucked that one up, so that one's not even on the table. They've been sent out of the garden, so that third command is no longer even on the table. So there are two instructions, standing instructions from the Lord, are populate the earth and work and care for the earth. Done and done. Right? They're, they're, they're doing what God has asked them to do. And we see, we see that in, in verse 2 of chapter 4, that Abel and Cain are fulfilling God's purpose and doing what God has asked for them. They are, in fact, caring for the earth. They are working the earth. They are bringing about produce. One of them is, is farming, is, is working in agriculture and growing plants, growing crops, and, and obviously is doing a fairly good job of it to this point because he has something to offer the Lord. The other is working as a shepherd and once again is doing a fairly good job of it because he has something to offer the Lord. But what's interesting and so amazing to me here is that here, so early in human history, Humanity is making offerings to the Lord, but they are doing so not out of compulsion, but out of desire. These are both free will offerings that both Cain and Abel are making to the Lord. I think this is important for us to understand. That, that neither, neither of these, at, at the heart, neither of these people are, are trying to do a bad thing. Both of them are genuine in their desire to, to some degree, honor the Lord. They are offering free will offerings by their own choice, by their own volition to the Lord. So the question again has to be asked. What is it that made one offering better than the other? What is it that made one offering acceptable and the other unacceptable? Each brother has simply offered a portion of what their hands had produced, right? Freely, of their own will. So what made one better? Well, some, some scholars believe that the issue between the two, the two offerings is blood. That what made, what made Abel's sacrifice better and acceptable and Cain's not is that Abel offered, offered a, a sacrifice that, that had the blood in it. There was a shedding of blood, whereas Cain did not. And it makes sense where, where you can see where someone would come to that conclusion. Because in Hebrews, where, where we pulled, where we started from, if we go back just a couple of chapters to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the author writes that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That without the, the, and, and we know, looking through the Old Testament, looking for the Levitical law and, and Deuteronomy and, and looking through all of these things, we understand that most sacrifices that involves some kind of purification, involves some shedding of some kind of blood. To make, to make an atoning sacrifice, you, something had to die. But, but you know, if, as we look at the text here, these aren't meant to be sacrifices. 
The words utilized in Genesis chapter 4 are not the words that are used for sacrifice. They are offerings, not sacrifices. These are, in fact, gifts of worship. They are acts of worship. All these things are meant to do. They are not meant to, to make one right with God, but they are actually evidence that one is in right relationship with God. They are, they are evidences that they understand the greatness and the glory of God and God's provision in their lives. These are simply acts of worship. And even in the Levitical law, both plant and animal offerings were acceptable acts of worship. And, and let's go a step further. We can't hold Cain and Abel to expectations that have not yet been stated. To say that this is about blood would apply to Cain and Abel understandings that had not yet been given from the Lord. We're still, we're still hundreds of years from God revealing the Mosaic law, right? So it, it, these free will offerings come. It's not like God is going to be upset because they didn't do what he said. They didn't follow the Mosaic law because it doesn't exist. So I don't think that this is about a, a blood issue. I don't think that that's the problem. A strong argument could also be made, though, that the quality of the offerings is the issue. That the quality of the offerings is the issue. And I think that there's some truth to this. The quality of the offering that we bring to God does, in fact, say something about what we believe about God. The offerings we bring to God do say something about what we believe about God. To quote one of our young Bible scholars here at First Baptist Church, God deserves more than our leftovers. So how do we see that in this text? Well, let's look at the, the passage again. If we look at verse 3, it talks to us about Cain. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Verse 4, we see a comparison here. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, the flock. We see in the text that Cain simply brings some of the fruits of the soil. There, there's a, a notable absence of any kind of adjective or, or modifier to determine the quality of what has been brought. Big Brother just brought God some of what he had received, which is fine. He decided that this was the offering he was going to bring. He brings God some of what he's got, but it's just some of it. Abel, however, brings fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. For Abel's offering, the author actually doubles down to describe the quality of the offering. The author doubles down to describe the quality of the offering. Abel brings fat portions. We go throughout the Bible, and we see that the term fat portions is used to describe the very best, healthiest, richest part of an animal. Now, we lose sight of that today because we are so an anti-fat society. I can't remember a time in my life when someone has told me that I was looking a little bit chubby that I thought, man, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for that compliment. You know, I, I, I mean, th think about that. Ladies, someone comes up to you and say, hey, you put on a little bit of weight, haven't you? What, what one of you ladies in this room are going to say, well, thank you. I've been really working on that. <laughs> but, you know, historically, being, being rotund, having, having some extra weight on you was a sign of, of wealth. It was a sign of health. It was a sign of, of being rich and well off. And particularly in animals, you, you wanted a healthy, you didn't want a scraggly, skinny animal. And that even is true today, right? There, there's a reason that a New York strip costs less than a ribeye. And I didn't understand that as a child, right? The ribeye would come, and I'm like, man, there's all this fat on this steak. Why didn't they cut this off? It's only now in my older years that I remember that that fat is where the good taste is. That that's what makes, Robin always telling our kids, that's what makes it taste good. What's wrong with you? The fat portions. As a matter of fact, when God eventually does give the sacrificial law, he's very clear about, don't, don't take any of the fat. That's mine. It's the part that makes it smell good. It makes it taste good. It's the sign of health and wholeness. 
That's what Abel brings. He brings fat portions. He brings the healthiest of what he has to offer. Second, he brings of the firstborn of his flocks. The firstborn was likely to be the strongest and most developed of a flock. It's the reality of time. But firstborn was also uh, uh, used as a, a symbol of power and blessing. You know, as a firstborn, I am keenly aware of how we firstborn are generally the most attractive, intelligent, and all-around excellent in the family. Any oldest children in the room that would say, yes, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> to quote Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. And so we see, we see, but we see that, right? That, that, that Abel, when he's making an offering, there, there's an intentionality behind it. But those two things are intending to show us that when, when Abel comes and brings his offering, his, his worship to the Lord, he is bringing the Lord the very best of the best of his flock. He's bringing God the best thing that he has to offer. Abel brings some. He just brings some of what he's got. Cain, excuse me, Cain brings some, just some of what he got. Abel brings the best that he's got. Abel's offering. God, God says that, that his offering is better because qualitatively it is better. It, from, from purely em, empirical observable truths, it is better in quality. But I would argue that even that is not the most important aspect of the offering. And I think we see that in the text. The heart of the issue is what God alone could see. The heart. The heart of the issue is what God alone could see, the heart. Now, I think the offering and the quality thereof does point to that. And we'll look at that here in a second. But God's concern is the heart of the giver. Verses 5 and 6. It says this. On Cain and his offering, the Lord did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? The acceptability of the offerings then had less to do with what was offered than the heart that offered them. We see that in the life of, of David as well, don't we? That everybody else is looking at the outside and they look at all of David's brothers that look better, but God says, no, I've, I've rejected them. David comes in and God says, hey, look, don't look at the outward, look at the heart. I, I'm not concerned with the outward appearance. What I'm concerned with is what's on the inside, the heart. Faith can and must be demonstrated by our actions. But the ultimate and most important indicator is between you and the Lord. The acceptability of our worship and the truth of our faith is in fact a matter of the heart. And I think we see that in what's given and the attitude with, what, with, with, with which it's given in this text. The object of our faith then will be seen in the integrity of our worship. The object of our faith, and I would argue the quality of it as well, will be seen in the integrity of our worship. Now, what do we mean when we talk about worship? Because that's what this passage is all about. That, that by faith, Abel offers better worship than Cain. Worship is ascribing worth to someone or something. It comes from the old English word, worth-ship. And interestingly enough, the word is not a verb. That, that worship is not is not primarily first and foremost something we do but is something that we give it is something that is offered worship is to offer something to demonstrate that someone or something carries worth and is deserving again we like to think of worship it's not how we think of worship is it and i think maybe that's part of our problem as the church today that, that we we tend to to dilute worship down just to a few songs that we sing before our, our sermon starts. The, the worship is the music that we hear, that we sing, and our preference and priorities with that. And, and, and you look throughout history, you look throughout the Bible, and that's never the case. Worship is never about just something we do, but a life that we bring to God. We think of it as a verb, right? It's the songs we sing. 
It's acts of service. It's we attend a church. It's we give money. And those things do play a part as they are offerings we can make. But worship is ultimately about offering ourselves and that what we have to demonstrate God's worth. Worship is about offering of ourselves to demonstrate the glory and worth of God. It's something we give to the Lord. You know, we worship many things. And and that's okay. The caution in Scripture is to guard against worshiping anything above and beyond our Creator God. Jesus tells his followers in John 4.23 that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That there is both an internal and an external quality and component to what happens in worship. The integrity then, the honesty of our worship, the genuine truth of what we offer and to whom we offer it will then be demonstrated and what or who we will demonstrate what or who we believe most worthy in our hearts. The integrity of our worship, the genuine truth of what we offer and to whom we offer it, will demonstrate what or who we believe is most worthy in our hearts. Our, the truth of our worship will show what matters most in our lives. And I think we see that in the lives of Cain and Abel. I think that's part of what God is telling us through sharing the story. And I think what we see in the life of Cain, because what's interesting to me in, in Genesis chapter 4, is how much time is spent showing that Cain is in fact wrong and how Cain continues to go wrong. Very little is actually shown about Abel and his worship, right? But it, 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 we go to Hebrews, and all Hebrews points out is the quality of Abel. I think there's a warning for us to take here in Genesis chapter 4. And we need to beware the temptation to make our offerings, to make our worship about me. Beware the temptation to make worship about me. I think this is the initial temptation. We, we, look, we look back to, to Genesis chapter 3. We think of the temptation as being to, to eat of the fruit of the tree of, good or no, of knowledge of good and evil, right? That's what we think of as being the temptation. That, that, hey, that's good fruit. You should go eat that. But that really isn't the temptation, is it? The temptation is what will result, what the, the tempter says will result from eating the fruit. That, hey, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. The temptation isn't just to eat the fruit, but the result of eating the fruit. That if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Now, this isn't the like God that we talk about in the New Testament, right? This isn't, this isn't trying to, 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 to mold our lives into the image of our Savior. This isn't, this isn't even Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that, that we are made in the image of the Creator, that we are those that carry, out, carry the imago dei, that we are just demonstrating the image of God within us. That's not the point. The point is equality with God. That Adam and Eve were tempted to eat of the fruit so that they could negate the necessity for God. That they could then be like God. They could, they could ascend to his level. The temptation is to replace faith in God with faith in us. To make life, its functionality, And it's outworkings about what we receive, what we deserve, what we get. And Cain follows in his parents' footsteps. He buys the lie that the serpent was selling. And his offering and response to God reveals that his primary concern is his own worth. Let's look back at verse 3 of chapter 4 again. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Now make no mistake, Cain, Cain's offering was genuine. It is offered in gratitude for what he, God had helped him to produce, what God had done for him. Cain's offering, however, also demonstrates who Cain feels is most worthy. Because who gets the best of the best of the offering? It's not the Lord. The most deserving of that best portion of the crops was Cain. Cain honored God with some, but by keeping back the best for himself demonstrates who he feels is the most important. 
Cain honors the Lord, but Cain is throwing the Lord a proverbial bone. Here's a little something for your troubles, Lord. Appreciate your service. Cain had faith so long as God served his purposes. Cain was, in fact, worshiping Cain and honoring God for doing the same. The issue here with Cain's offering and his worship was it demonstrates who is truly most important in Cain's life. Cain is only coming to God with some of what he has because Cain's done the work. Cain deserves what Cain's got, and God just happened to serve Cain in the process. It's a subtle thing, but as I think about it in my own life, I know that I sometimes make the mistake of slipping into this same mentality. And, and I've been in, around the church long enough to know that we as the church often do the same thing. We worship the Lord. Why do we worship the Lord? Because of all the glorious things he's done for us. Because of all the good things that he has brought into our lives. And, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But when that becomes the primary focus of our worship, have we not missed the point? Because it's no longer about recognizing the all-surpassing greatness and glory of God. It is not about coming to God and offering to God of ourselves because he, in fact, is worthy. And he alone is worthy and deserves our praise. But it's coming to God because of what he has done for us because we deserve it. I mean, even, even in our worship wars, right? Like, even in our fights, it's not about us coming and fighting about the integrity of what truly worships the Lord most, what truly brings the most honor and glory to his name. That's not our concern. We are, we are concerned about what speaks to me, what I enjoy. I just really enjoy the screen, and I really enjoy the guitar, and I enjoy the drums. That's great. I don't think that's a bad thing. But that's not what it's about. Oh, I just really enjoy the hymnals and I enjoy the organ and piano. That's great, but that's not what it's about. I love that pastor in England that had the guts to say, you know what, we're just not going to sing anything. Fine, if that's what we're going to make it about, because this isn't what worship is about. Worship is not about what you or I receive. It's not about what you or I want. It's not about our preferences and priorities. It's about the all-surpassing greatness and glory of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And yes, God does amazing things. He is the sustainer and creator. And he's worthy of glory because of that. Not because of what he's done for us, but because of who he is. I think too often we misapply and misunderstand what faith and worship are really about. And brothers and sisters, I am not throwing stones at you. I do the same thing. We get so stubbornly stuck in our own way, our own wants, our own preferences and priorities that we forget what it was about in the first place. Our attitudes and actions then become more about honoring ourselves than honoring the Lord. Now we could say, well, you're being really judgmental about Cain. Well, fair enough. But understand that God himself does say, I've rejected this. Not taking a far jump here. And we see the reality of Cain's heart and his response to both God and his brother. We see the reality and the truth about what was most important to Cain in his response to God and his response to his brother. Cain's first response to his brother, or, or to the Lord, when the Lord says, hey, I'm, I'm not going to accept this, this is unacceptable, is immediately anger. His response to God's disapproval of him is to disapprove of God. I understand this. Don't you? Like, I don't know how it works for you, but, but I know for me, I don't enjoy when people say unpleasant things about me, even if they're true. And my initial response is not, okay, you're right. Never, ever, ever. I confess my sin to you. For instance, when I go for a run, and Robin and I go for a ride run, perhaps you've seen us going around town and we go for a ride run, we get home and she's still smelling like a daisy because she's ridden on this like casual recumbent recliner bike and I'm dying because I've actually run and done work while we run, right? And inevitably we'll get home and, and she's going right to work on dinner and so I, being the good, honorable husband that I am, want to help her with work, with the, the dinner. We all know that's not true, I just want to eat, Right? And so I'll be in the kitchen moving around, and Robin, in a playful 
playful way, will say, oh, Chumma, you stinky. You know what my immediate response to her is? You stink. It's not true. doesn't matter, though. Like, how dare you insult my, my scent? Like, we just don't talk about this, right? This is not something that we bring up in polite company. Polite company being you and me right now. That's the immediate response. And, and, and is that not the response of a child? Well, I know you are, but what am I? God says, hey, hey, Cain, I'm, I, don't approve, I don't approve of this sacrifice. And Cain says, well, I don't approve of you, Lord. Tell me that's not what's going on here. Cain, it's unacceptable. Well, God, you're unacceptable. I know you are, but what am I? Cain's response is absolutely childish, nonsensical, and above all, selfish. It's not a rebuttal, a true rebuttal, so much as a trite tantrum. Cain demonstrates that Cain's concern is his own glory. Like, how dare you demean my value? Cain's first response is anger and a rebuttal. Cain's response to Abel demonstrates deep jealousy and contempt. Now, we can again understand this response as well, can't we? That both Cain and Abel brought offerings of their own free will to offer to the Lord. Both of them are trying to recognize God for what he's done or who he is. And and we can understand where Cain is coming from. that, That his offering was rejected, but his brother's was accepted. And he believed he deserved better. You ever been in this kind of a situation? Where God does something in your life and you have you've been trying to follow the Lord. You've been doing your dead level best to serve God with your life. To offer God what you had. And no matter what, it keeps coming back to you negative. And you keep thinking to yourself, God, I deserve better than this. Anyone, anyone willing to honestly say that? I'll tell you that that's been true in my life. With both of my children. Both of my children were born premature. Michaela was born three months premature, JJ was born one month premature, and I remember specifically going in to JJ's birth and being excited because it was only a month, and the doctor had told us, hey, we're going to go in, we'll deliver him, it's not going to be a big deal, you guys should be heading home within the next couple of days. And I'm like, sweet, finally a normal kid, don't have to deal with any of this nonsense of the the NICU, and and within just moments of him being um, taken out, they were off to the NICU. And they're like, hey, you're probably going to have to stay here for a couple of weeks. And I was livid with God. I was furious with the Lord. And I remember praying to the Lord and saying to the Lord, God, how, how dare you? How dare you? I have offered my life to you. I have gone to school to serve you. I I have literally spent all of my school years studying so that I could serve you in pastoral ministry. Here I am working in pastoral ministry, making less money than I could make in another field with the same education. I have given up a a lucrative career. I have given up any any pursuit of my own benefit in in the world. But here I am serving you, and you're going to do me like this again? God, I deserve better. If we are honest with ourselves, we all have those moments where things go bad or things don't come out like we are and it feels to us like rejection. And rather than seeking where is God moving in this and understanding that God is good and God is worthy and God is holy, even if my life isn't what I want it to be, we turn and we reveal the truth of our hearts that we believe that God is in fact, at least in part, there to serve us. And how dare God not serve us in the way we feel we deserve? That's what's going on with Cain. Cain looks at the reality of what's going on with his brother and looks at the reality of what's going on with him and he says, God, I deserve better. Again, Cain's attitude and actions demonstrate that his worship was about Cain. About what he had done and what he had deserved. And God warns Cain. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. 
God tells Cain, either you will bring your sin under control or sin will control you. It will drive you to this destructive acts of self-service. And you know, you know what this rings of in my mind? This reminds me of Jesus saying to, to those that are listening to him, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to pick. Because you're either going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. You can, brothers and sisters, we cannot serve our own self-interests and serve the Lord simultaneously. We cannot have two things, two people sitting on the ultimate throne of our lives. We cannot ascribe ultimate worth and value to both God and ourselves. We have to pick a lane. And you know what? We see Cain ultimately does pick a lane. God warns him, hey, get this under control or it's going to control you. You either get this in check or it's going to drive you to do things that you ought not do. And what do we see in the very next verse? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain quite literally sacrifices his brother on the altar of his own ego. Cain quite literally sacrifices his brother to himself. Tell me it's not true. Why did he kill him? Because it was easier to silence the good of Abel than to correct the actions of Cain. Cain was so consumed by his own self-importance that rather than correcting the wrong in his own life, he killed his brother to silence Abel's right. And when worship becomes about us, we are likely to use or abuse others in our efforts to elevate ourselves to serve our purposes. And our offering becomes is revealed to be truly about us and not about the God that we serve. We do see the, the right life of, of Abel in this. And we need to understand the reality of why does God accept Abel's offering. Because right worship isn't just about right action or a right life, but the result of a right relationship with God. Cain's right actions, or Abel's right actions, flowed out of the fact that he understood his position and his relationship with the Creator. Have you ever noticed that Abel is actually the first person to be commended for his faith in the Bible? He's the first person to be declared as righteous, the first one that is accepted for his actions. It's not Adam. It's not Eve. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, by faith, Abel offered a better offering, and by faith, he was commended as righteous. Abel offered God the best that he had to give. And Abel's offering demonstrated his belief that it was God who had provided for him, yes, and that even his physical labor was an act of obedience and service to God's command. That, that yes, he received from the Lord through his labors, but that those labors were in response to what God had asked. And, and that they were in result, a result of his understanding that God was creator and had the right to dictate how he should function in his life. Abel's actions further demonstrated that he understood that all he had was a gift from the creator. That it was God's world and he simply had the pleasure of living in and enjoying it. Abel's faith is validated in the integrity of his worship, which was an outworking of the truth of his life, the truth of what he believed. His right, he is righteous not simply for his act of worship, but because of the proper posture of his heart in relationship with God. His actions and his offering demonstrate that he understood that God was of all surpassing worth and that God deserved the very best that he had to offer. And that, it, that demonstrates that his life itself was an act of service and worship to God. He has his heart's in the proper place. You know what else jumped at me when I thought about this week as I was reading this passage is that in truth, Abel is the first martyr in Scripture. Because what is a martyr? Someone who witnesses to their faith through their death. And why is it that Abel died? Because of his better offering. Because of the integrity of his faith. He died for his relationship with the Lord. His blood was shed because of the integrity of his worship and service to God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that even though dead, 
he still speaks from the grave. His witness is still made to us because his death was an act of faith. Righteousness will result in doing the right thing. But true righteousness only comes through right relationship with God. True righteousness comes through right relationship with God. See, we get it twisted when we make all of these different things we do and the hoops that we jump through with acts that, that demonstrate our righteousness. And we start with that. We get the proverbial cart before the horse. Those acts and actions aren't things that we do. We don't worship God to demonstrate how worthy we are or to demonstrate the integrity of our faith in our God, but to, to, to demonstrate the worth of God. Because that we, we don't do those things to create a right relationship, but because a right relationship has been given by God's declaration and his power and presence. Abel's sacrifice is better because Abel's heart was right. And Abel's heart was right because he had a proper understanding of who God was, that he kept God in, in the true and proper position, the seat of preeminence in his life. And if you and I want to worship God the way that God has intended, we need to start by understanding who God is and recognizing his greatness and his glory, his all-surpassing worth, and not getting twisted and make it about us and what we deserve and how God serves us. True faith flows from a heart of humble submission and service to creator God. It isn't simply a response to the good God does for us, but but recognition of the truth of how good and worthy God is. Yes, God does amazing things to care for us. Yes, every good thing we have is a gift of his grace and evidence of his power and presence of our lives. But we must be careful not to get it twisted by believing that God owes us something. That he is somehow under obligation to act in our service. Faith starts with the correct understanding of the supremacy and all-surpassing worth and glory of our God. And that, in turn, leads to attitudes and actions of worship on our part as we live our lives in submission and service to his will by faith. Faith is the foundation of a right relationship with God that results in right actions flowing from a right heart. This time I'm going to invite the worship team to come and make their way back to the stage. And I want you all to, to, in this moment, go ahead and take your communion cups. Because I think the things that we've just talked about are particularly true when it comes to Christ. We, we have a, a tendency to make our understanding of Jesus hinge on what Jesus has done rather than who Jesus is. And the truth of the matter is what Jesus did only mattered because of who Jesus was and is. That our salvation, our pardon was only purchased. It was only made possible and acceptable because the perfect Lamb of God gave his life on our behalf. Our salvation starts by recognizing who Jesus is, not just what Jesus has done. And this morning as we come to the table to celebrate communion, I want to take a moment to by faith thank Jesus for who he is to recognize his all-surpassing glory. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, we do come to you with humble hearts of repentance, asking you to forgive us for moments when light came we make life and worship about us. When we lose sight of your all-surpassing greatness and glory and see you as our humble servant. Lord, it is true you serve us beyond what we could ask or imagine and we are so grateful for that. But God, beyond that, we thank you for who you are. We recognize that you are creator God, maker of heaven and earth. That you are creator and sustainer, almighty God. We pray that you'd forgive us for moments where we 
have other gods before you, including our own selves. And God, we thank you for the truth of Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, giving us the model that we should seek to follow. God, we recognize today the all-surpassing greatness of your glory. And we worship you for who you are, not just for what you've done. But Lord, at the same time, we do thank you for what you've done because of who you are. We thank you for your great sacrifice. Lord, understanding that we don't deserve it, that we are unworthy, that the great God of heaven should look upon us with favor and that the perfect spotless Son of God should die on our behalf. Thank you for your gift. May it remind us who you are and lead us to acts of service and worship, to make your name known, to ascribe greatness to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture tells us that on the night that Christ was betrayed, the perfect Son of God, that he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Take it as often as you do it in memory of me, the body of Christ broken for you. Scripture goes on to tell us that in the same way Christ took the cup. And he offered it to his disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant. And my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it as often as you do it in memory of me. The blood of Christ shed for you. Lord God, we thank you for these gifts of your body and your blood. And we recognize that by taking them into ourselves that we are joining ourselves with your body. Joining ourselves to our brothers and sisters. And in humility recognizing our need for you. Submitting ourselves to your lead. To your salvation. Lord, we do thank you for the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus. For the, the totality of his sacrifice. And Lord, in response to who you are, we offer ourselves to you. Not just the gift of our hands, but the truth of our hearts and our very lives. Lord, please accept these gifts of worship this morning. Accept our hearts and our very selves in Jesus' name. Amen.